All right. I am proud of every one of you that's sitting here <laughs> today. It's uh, it's been a crazy world, right? It's been a crazy world. Like it, it's not always crazy, but anyway. Um, today we are studying the second half of chapter three of First Peter. So if you want to go ahead and open up to that, that's the text I'll be using. And I I titled this "Suffering for Doing Good," but I subtitled it too. And I subtitled it, Take Off Your Hat. And later on, you're going to understand what I'm talking about. I brought a prop, in other words. I brought a prop. All right. So let me update you. Last Thursday, what we talked about last Thursday, we we talked about the first part of 1 Peter's chapter 3. This It's a letter, we said. We now call it 1 Peter. Um, It's the letter that he wrote to the first century church in Northern Asia Minor. However, this section of his letter concerns authority, injustice, and how those Christians might honor God with their behavior in the midst of it. And this chapter, this, uh, sorry, this topic really began with Carmen's talk on chapter 2, verse 11, where she's, where she's talked about slaves and masters. The societal structure for them included this, slaves and masters. And Peter's point that he was making in that was that their unbelieving neighbors, Peter's point for this whole letter is this, their unbelieving neighbors, and in some cases their family members, are always watching them. They are the first and perhaps only introduction to Christ that they will ever have, that these people will ever have. How will they ever know Christ but through you? By not just what you say, but by the way you behave. They were preaching the gospel to them by the way they lived. In their Greco-Roman society, we we learned this last week, the well-ordered home was essential to maintain the stability of the empire. This is the the philosophy that guided that society that they lived in. So if there was any action that they undertook that was subversive to that belief, well, it made them it made them subversive to their society, and therefore they were perceived as a threat. So Peter's counseling them. He's counseling this Christian community, the Christian communities in these various cities and towns in this area, to live in such a way as to put these threats that they are receiving, put those threats to shame because of the honorable life that they live before God, that that will put it all to shame, all these threats, all these accusations, all this slander that is coming against them. Um, And they are to live honorable lives before God at all times and in every area of their lives. And that's why he starts to designate the different areas of society that they are involved in. And we've talked about slaves and masters. We've talked about wives and husbands. And I left off husbands and wives, and now I'm going to talk about that today. So that's where I'm going to start today, which is verse 7. But I also promised you, first things first, that I would address those strange, weird verses about Sarah, right? Well, there's a couple of things that we don't understand, and that is the pseudepigraphical texts. That they, that are the stories of the society that they understand. And one of those pseudepigraphical texts 
that, I mean, they, these are texts that were not canonized, but they were out there, and they were in the culture, and so Peter, it's like a book. Peter is referring to something they know and understand, and one of those texts was the Testament of Abraham. We don't use the Testament of Abraham, because if you were to read it, and I kind of did in my exploration, it's weird, okay? But it does mention this bit about Sarah, but so does Genesis. So that's what we usually will stick with. Um, uh, so, But I'm just going to get to the point of it, all right? Remember that when instructing the slaves to submit to their masters, Peter gave them the example of someone who demonstrated the kind of submission that he was talking about? Do you remember that? Do you remember that? He had an example in there? Sarah. Who was it? Sarah. It wasn't Sarah. Who did he use? It was in chapter 2. And he used an example when he was talking about the slaves and the masters. Don't forget, this is when Carmen was talking to us. And there was a person that was an example of what he was talking about. Who was it? It was Jesus. It was Jesus. Okay? So, um, in Greco-Roman treatises, all treatises, uh, they will talk about virtues. And the authors will always refer to someone who exemplifies the virtues that they're to imitate. Well, our society, are we so different? Because, like, when I was a girl, my mother admired Eleanor Roosevelt. And she used to talk about Eleanor Roosevelt as a, as a person to esteem and to pattern my, uh, how my mother patterned her life after Eleanor Roosevelt a little bit. And then, uh, in our day and age, uh, there was a time when Mother Teresa, remember Mother Teresa was? And now when you walk into Barnes & Noble, they're happy to tell you who to esteem, right? Okay? Yeah. <laughs> they'll say, and they'll write a whole darn book about that person and put it up there on the, on the windows, you know. Esteem this person. Well, um, this is in their society, too. And, and you can put, put Rosa Parks or Martha Stewart, you can fill in the blank however you like. But when Peter is talking about a virtue that he is trying to encourage these women of unbelieving husbands to embrace, it's the virtue of what? Obedience. Yeah, remember? It's a virtue of obedience. And so, in their culture, they've been given all these Greek, you know, because in the Greek culture, they want them to obey, too, um, so the Greco-Roman culture, but they're giving them these Greek examples. So Peter wants to connect them to their faith. So he says, Sarah. And what was it about Sarah? Well, first of all, in Jewish writings, she's the spiritual mother of the Jewish nation. She's considered that. And so he cites the example of the scriptures. He wants to pull them in. Um, but it's odd. The scriptures are odd because if you go and you read those scriptures, that he says Sarah called Abraham Lord. Well, she didn't call him Lord to his face in the scriptures in Genesis. She talked called him Lord out of re, out of his earshot. And so this is indicative that this isn't about walking up to him and calling him Lord. It's about the attitude of her heart. It's about the attitude, her attitude towards him in her heart. It's a submissive attitude, but it's not a coerced submissive attitude. It is, it is willing. It's a willing 
attitude. And that's the point. You see, Sarah is not subjugated. There's no demand. She doesn't... But but he's encouraging her to willingly submit because why? This will glorify God and make him known in her home. That's why. (laughs) That's it. So, husbands... We struggle with this too, and we think the translation of verse 7 here, uh, I read this one, I went, boy, this kind of gets at it a little bit better. It's from the Common English Bible, and and uh, if you've got Bible Gateway, you can kind of go down a stream of different translations. But this one, I thought, sort of got to the core of what uh, Peter's trying to tell the husbands. Husbands, he says, likewise, meaning we're talking about submission here, husbands. We talked about slaves, we talked about wives, now we're going to talk to you husbands. So likewise, likewise in this conversation of submission, you submit by living with your wife in ways that honor her, knowing that she's the weaker partner. Honor her all the more for that reason, because she, and this is so subversive to their culture, she is a co-heir of the gracious care of life. She also inherits, just like you. And in their culture, did women inherit? Nothing. Nothing. They were property. So do this, he says, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Well, um, about this understanding of the words weaker partner or weaker vessel, as some translations in the scripture read, Jen Wilkin is our Bible study author. And she wrote an excellent blog about this that I read. Her website, if you want to read the whole blog yourself, is her first name, Jen, just the way she spells it on the front, jenwilkin.net slash blog. And then look for the, the, the one that she wrote called Weaker Vessels, if you decide to read it yourself. Well, I'm going to quote from her so you'll get the gist of what she had to say. She told a little story about she and her husband being at a concert And while they were waiting for the concert to begin, there was a husband and a wife, not too far from them, uh, that I think they were like, it was an outdoor concert, so they might have been sitting on the hill. Well, this husband and wife, they got into a fight. And the fight escalated. And uh, they eventually left. But before that, they witnessed the wife hitting her husband. And she said, When they saw that, she said, well, we had an awkward moment. But if he had been hitting her, we would have called security. And so her point is this. Peter is reminding the husbands of this relationship, and he's warning them not to use physical strength to intimidate or harm their wives, but to honor her because of the way they thought about women in that culture. So in this Greco-Roman society where his wife is his property, he has the legal right to treat her however he wants to. Legal, he can do, legally, he can do whatever he wishes. And these words, these words of Peter's, they're a radical departure from that. That's a radical departure from that expectation. And what are those expectations? Well, in this culture, husbands had this understanding. They understood that they had courtesans for pleasure, They had concubines for daily sexual service. And they had wives whose purpose in their life was to bear legitimate children and to be faithful guardians of their households. This is in their writings. This is in the Greco-Roman writings of their leaders and their teachers and their philosophers. That's where I got it from. Well, in this context, just imagine. 
Now read Peter's words to to the husbands. It's mind-blowing, right? Yeah, it's so out. It's so subversive. It's so threatening. So, we're going to start now at verse 8. Chapter 3, verse 8. Peter sums up all that he has discussed on the subject of submission to authority in this. Slaves and masters, citing Jesus as an example. Wives and husbands, citing Sarah as an example of obedience for the wives. What am I talking about? I'm talking about this. And husbands and wives, husbands, submit to God. Submit to the call, to the way we live as Christians and honor, honor your wife. And now he talks to the church, the community of believers, the family, the family of believers. The way the church interacts speaks volumes to the society that these believers live in. So the whole world's watching. You know, the way that they treat one another is like they will know you're a Christian by your love. Eh, there's more. By the love that you show one another. They will know you are Christians by the love that you show one another means the way you treat each other, the whole world's watching. Okay? All right. Here we go. Finally, all of you should be of one mind. It doesn't mean you all have to think alike. It means all of you are likewise of this mind that you are under the headship and the lordship and the authority of Christ. Sympathize with each other. Love each other as brothers and sisters, Helio, Helio. Be tender-hearted and keep a humble attitude. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate when, with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do. And he will grant you his blessing. For the scriptures say, and the scriptures are Psalm 34, verses 12 through 16. They say this. I want you to enjoy life and see many happy days. Keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. The eyes of the Lord watch over all who do right. He's looking. The Lord is watching. And his ears are open to their prayers, just like the husbands were talking about. But the Lord will turn his face against those who do evil, who purposely, they purpose in their hearts to do evil. They delight in it. So, as a Presbyterian elder, I am charged by the pastors of this church who are under the authority of God to preserve the peace, the unity, and the purity of the church. I'm charged to to do that. And by the church, it means this body of believers right here at Blacknell. I serve them as an elder. Um, Jesus, or sorry, Peter is charging these believers to imitate Christ as they interact in society and with one another, but he doesn't use the words of Greek philosophers. He charges them by the authority of God, and he uses the Holy Scripture. Again, he's trying to turn them from the Greek philosophers and plug them in to their faith and the scriptures that are uh, all about their faith. Subverting, this is subverting the Greco-Roman culture, but he's grounding these, this body of believers in eternity. 
he's grounding them as citizens of the kingdom. And in chapter 1, he went to great lengths to tell them, you're in this world, but you're not of it. You live under this uh, this um, this uh, national authority, this government authority, but there's another authority that's even greater that you live under, and that's why you submit to this one. Because of this other authority, this kingdom of God authority that you live under. Because that's the way God will uh, has his hand of blessing on you. You have been born again. You have a new ethnicity. You're a member of the kingdom of God now. And you live like this. Well, when I think of submitting in the body of Christ among this family of believers, and I'm going to focus on perhaps the hottest topic besides the coronavirus that's, that's affecting us, it's the political season. I, I think of something like this. Try not to judge me, okay? Try hard. Resist until we get through this. <laughs> My hat. Okay, I th- it's a. Uh, you may recall in the story last week. I know it's going to pain some of you to watch me. So believe me, <laughs> relief is coming. Hold on, hold on. Okay, all right. Um, that I told you about the Palestinian town that I visited in the 1980s. It's called Ramallah, which means Hill of God. And I told you that there were two governing authorities there. One of them was the Israeli government, which the people in the village of Ramallah, they said, that's an occupying government. We don't, we don't submit to that. They submitted to the judge of their village, to the Mukhtar and to the village elders. And if they ever had issues with each other, or they were told ways of behaving, it was the Mukhtar that, that had charge of that. Well, in our land here, in our country, there's no law in this land that requires me to take this hat off. I could wear it to church on Sunday if I wanted to. By the laws of our land, I could. I had the right to wear it, even if common sense tells me differently. <laughs> I had the right to wear it. But there's a higher law and a higher authority that I live by because I am a citizen of the kingdom of God. That is the, that's my real and true authority. And that requires me to respect you, to search for peace amongst you and to maintain it, to sympathize with you and the struggles that you have with stuff like this. And to love you as my brothers and sisters and to be tender-hearted, not hard-hearted. This hat came with a little tag that said, it said, screw your feelings. It's a part of my way. That's awful. That's awful. <laughs> to be tender-hearted towards you and to, and to keep a humble attitude. And so out of reverent respect for you, I relinquish my right to wear this hat. I take it off. I take it off. I take off my hat. I don't wear this hat around you. The truth is I never wear stuff like this. Okay. <laughs> I had to actually buy this hat just to show you that, to make this point. I submit to the authority of God and I take it off. And I promise you I'll never wear it to church on Sunday morning. I'm going to put it back in the bag.
And as I was thinking about this and I thought about Christ as our example, I thought to myself, did Christ take off his hat? When he came to us, he took off his hat. He, he was. And think about where, when he came to us, where he came from. We sing songs at Christmas time. Thou who was rich beyond all measure, all for love's sake became us poor. He took off his hat. And he did more than that. He sacrificed his life. He gave it all up for us. So he's our example, isn't he? Taking off our hats. Um, and, and for us as Americans, it's hard because what are we all about as a country? Our rights. Our rights. The Bill of Rights. We have the right. We let that guide our lives, but that's why Jesus said to you and me, citizens of the kingdom of God, he said, be in the world, but don't be of it. Live in here. Live in your country. Don't do as the other citizens of the country are doing just because you have the right to do it. Husbands, you have the right, but don't do that. Live like a citizen of the kingdom of God first, first and foremost. So now we're going to talk about suffering for doing good, and I'm going to start with verse 13. Now, who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? This is important. Remember, that sounds like a rhetorical question. And you would say, oh, no one, right? But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks you, that's the key word, asks, that means you're not standing out there passing out tracts. Let's see, about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. Live first. But do this in a gentle and respectful way and keep your conscience clear. You know, don't go home saying, oh, why did I do that? Why did I do that? And then if people speak against you, they'll be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ in the world, but not of it. Remember, it is better to suffer for doing good if that's what God wants than to suffer for doing wrong. So several weeks ago, I received in my email a daily devotional from Christian History, and I subscribe to that, so it'll come in my email daily. And on this day, I was reading about a man named Graham Staines. Well, Graham was a Christian from Australia who'd made his home in India. He had visited there, and he fell in love with the area and the people. And he ended up working with lepers in a region called, and I probably am saying this wrong, but it's Baripada. I'm going to say it that way. He married and had three children, a daughter and two sons. And Graham lived the gospel among these people. He didn't talk a whole lot because of what he couldn't. And they weren't receiving the word of the gospel. They weren't receiving the word. But the region that he lived in, they clung to the Santal culture. And they resented Christians because they refused to offer animal sacrifices to appease evil spirits. So what that meant was when bad things happened to them and they blamed it on evil spirits, they would sacrifice to those to try to appease them. Well, the Christians weren't doing this, so whose fault was it if something bad happened to the region? It's the Christians' fault. Because they wouldn't sacrifice. So they also angered traditionalists by singing hymns during Christian weddings. 
1999, after Graham and his two sons attended the annual jungle camp that was held by a church there, where they dispensed medicines and inspected people for leprosy, the, the resentment in the region spilled over. And the church at, that sponsored the camp was crowded, so Graham and his sons, they opted to sleep in their jeep. And just after midnight, a mob that was instigated by a zealous Hindu, uh, this mob surrounded the jeep and they set it on fire. And Graham's sons were like six and eight or something like that. And when Graham and his sons tried to escape, they pushed him back until they were burned to death. Well, uh, so international outcry was immediate. Staines was beloved in Baripada for his years of self-sacrificial work among the poor and the sick. And thousands turned out to mourn him. The leprosy patients sobbed inconsolably. But Gladys, his wife, told them, I am terribly upset, but my husband loved Jesus Christ, who taught us to forgive our enemies. Now, who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you suffer for doing good and doing what is right, God will reward you. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must Worship Christ as Lord of your life. This is a dangerous world. Their threats are everywhere and constant. I think of the prayer meeting at the AME church in Charleston. Do you remember that? My sister lived in Charleston, so it's really connected to this. It affected our whole country. A young man enters the prayer meeting. It's at a black church, and AME is usually a black church. Um, uh, and he sits down and participates in the prayer meeting, a white young man. And at the end, he stands up and he pulls out a gun and he shoots and kills everyone sitting in the prayer circle that have just been praying for him and with him. My sister lives in Charleston, and she and Charleston and eventually our whole country was deeply impacted by that because the congregation forgave and the family members forgave. And the media was looking for a hot story. Let's get this racism thing going again. And it never went anywhere because the Christians forgave. Who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, You must worship Christ as Lord of your life. Every aspect of your life. Well, these believers were afraid. That's why Peter's telling them this. And so he tries to reassure them and encourage them, explaining that Christ has authority over everything. You know, spiritual, that their community worshipped pagan gods and spirits and did all kinds of weird stuff that, that we don't even really understand. But he's saying Christ has authority over all the powers and principalities of the unseen world. And so now I'm going to start at verse 18 and finish up. Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit. In the spirit. 
So he went and he preached to the spirits in prison, those who disobeyed God long ago from drowning in that terrible flood. And that water is a picture of baptism, which now saves you, not by removing dirt from your life, and your body, rather, from your body, but as a response to God from a clean conscience. There's that conscience again. It is effective because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, Christ has gone to heaven, and he is seated in the place of honor next to God. And all the angels and authorities and powers accept his authority. Now, uh, this area where they live, it is really close, it is an area of Turkey that is, uh, even to this day, very involved in the Noah story. And um, even the Gentiles and the pagans, that story is so ancient in their culture that they all have a connection to the Noah story, and Peter knows that. So he's going to talk about that. So Noah was the most prominently known biblical figure in Asia Minor, even among the Gentiles. And I went online and had a lot of fun because they found Noah's Ark. You know, years ago they did. It wasn't a big story in our country, but it was in other parts of the world. And and, uh, so I looked at the video of it. It was way cool to see. So they, um, they live in that region where the Ark is said to be resting. And some of the towns had these anchor stones that were used on the ark to anchor it. And they're huge, and they have a hole cut at the top of it. And some of them, the natives later, took and put eight crosses on there. And the names of their towns are called, uh, will have the names of, of, will have the word ark in their names. Or the towns will be called, uh, have this in their long Turkish name. A place of eight, meaning those people. So you can see all of this if you want to go on on YouTube and see it all. It's kind of fascinating. And um, it's really interesting, but that's a digression. But it also sets this next part up. Uh, Back to Peter. Peter connects the dots between these believers and Noah and his family in these six ways. And he's doing it actually all through the letter. He's doing it all through the letter. Here's the six ways. One, Noah and his family were a minority surrounded by un, by hostile unbelievers, and so are Peter's readers. Two, Noah was righteous in the midst of a wicked world, and Peter exhorts his readers to be righteous in the midst of wicked unbelievers. Three, Noah witnessed boldly to those around him by believing God and building the ark. Peter encourages his readers to be good witnesses to unbelievers around them. Four, Noah realized that judgment was soon to come upon the world, and Peter reminds his readers that God's judgment is certainly coming soon, perhaps very soon. Five, at the time of Noah, God patiently waited for repentance from unbelievers before he brought judgment. And so it's also the situation of Peter's readers, God's being patient. And six, Noah was finally saved with only a few others, eight Peter encourages his readers that, though perhaps few, when at this time they are, they too will certainly be saved because Christ has triumphed and has all things subject to him. 
Now, the best and most comprehensive teaching that I saw was was by Skip Heitzig, H-E-I-T-Z-I-G, the pastor of Calvary Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and his talk was excellent. And it's on YouTube, and it's called The Invisible War. And it will really, he took an hour to explain this, these three verses or however many they are. <laughs> and I only have a few minutes. So I hope you get to listen to it because it's a really good teaching. But in a nutshell, he says... You know, he, he explains lots more than I'm going to say. I'm going to give you a paragraph. He says that, that between Jesus' death and his rising from the dead, he visited somewhere, he went somewhere, and he made a proclamation. Genesis chapter 6 has this really little weird story about the sons of God who saw the daughters of men. And most people understand that this is in reference to fallen angels, disobedient, immortal spirits. These disobedient immortal spirits overstepped their boundaries and they left the spirit realm to cohabit with mortal women. This is in Genesis. It's there. I've read it more than once and I've always gone, huh? Okay. Well, their offspring are giants. And I can't remember what they call these giants, but they tell you in Genesis. And they're unredeemable and very evil people. So God commands God bringing judgment. He's going to wipe all this out. And so he tells Noah to build the ark. It takes Noah 120 years to build that ark. For 120 years, Noah's building of the ark is telling these people judgment is coming. And they, and then probably when someone asks, like Peter says, he explained what was going to happen. But that he intends to destroy all of this evil with a great flood, but no one listens. The scripture says nobody listened. They all laughed. And finally, it's time. So Noah and his family of eight, three sons, three wives, their three wives, Noah and his wife, they enter the ark and God closes them in. And then God imprisons those evil immortal spirits and he contains and restrains them. And when Jesus, who is our ark of salvation, when he rises from the dead, these evil ones thought, he's dead, we got it, we finally overcame him. He goes to them and he says, he proclaims to them, it's finished. And the war is over and you lost. And all of these attempts by the evil one to subvert God's plan of saving those who believe, his plan to place them all in the ark of Christ, that the final judgment, that they will uh, it be uh, will pass over them, those attempts by the evil one have come to nothing. And all the attempts, and then, and then what's so cool about what Skip says, he goes through the scripture and shows all the attempts that were made to wipe out the Jewish people. Why was that important? Because that's where this plan of salvation was coming through, this group of people. And and that's what was so cool. He's going to start at Genesis, and he goes all the way through, and he shows you how this wipeout plan was tried, but it comes to nothing. And so Peter, he wants to ground the believer's willingness to suffer unjustly for the sake of Christ, and the fact that Christ's willingness to suffer unjustly for their sake because that he might bring them to God. And he anchors them with the conquering power, the conquering power of Christ's resurrection and ascension. It's over. It's finished. They lost. We won. While the world may have viewed Jesus as a common criminal executed by Roman authorities with probable cause, Peter describes him as the righteous and undeserving of the death he suffered. 
But Jesus didn't die just an undeserved death. He died a vicarious one on behalf of the unrighteous. He died for you, and he died for me, that we might live. He died our death, that we might live his life. And uh, so we're going to pray, but I want you to listen to these words by this old, old song by a group that was popular, a Christian group, when I was a young Christian. It's by Petra. It's called Not of This World. These are the words. We are pilgrims in a strange land. You don't belong here. You belong somewhere else. We are so far from our homeland. With each passing day, it seems so clear this world will never want us here. We're not welcome in this world of wrong. We're foreigners. We don't belong. We are strangers. We are aliens. We are not of this world. We are envoys. We must tarry with this message we must carry. By the way we live. By the way we speak. There's so much to do before we leave. With so many more who may believe. Our mission here can never fail. The gates of hell will not prevail. They haven't. Jesus told us men would hate us, but we must be of good cheer, for he has overcome this world of darkness. And soon we will depart from here and come back again and God will establish his kingdom. So let's pray to the Father God, so your word deep in our heart, help us to come up under your authority and in every dimension of our life, social, uh, employment-wise, uh, Bring us up under your authority that we uh, live and speak your kingdom into our world. Make yourself known. Bring many people to Christ. They too might enter the ark of salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.